Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, by Ufei's trailing spouse, the man behind Danway.com, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, how are you, man? Hey, Kaiser, that's uh, quite an introduction. Slightly different from uh, the notorious Prince of Peking, Pottymouth Punditry, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll roll <laughs> no, with it. Uh, the, the, the Pottymouth Prince of Peking Punditry. Yeah. That's the one that I will always remember and cherish. Anyway, I want you to share with us an observation that you've made in the last week or so about life in the American South. Life in the American South is pretty good, and I mean, my main observation is that, um, like most of my Yankee friends, have never been south of the Mac- uh, Mason Dixon line. Mason Dixie line. Dixon Dixie. Um, no idea what they <laughs> That's cute. Mason Dixie line. Mason line. Sorry, it's a bit early here. Um, really, have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm. I think that we're going to make this a regular feature of the show, where you're going to give us an update from from Dixieland. And, uh, I will. Right. Uh, sadly, I did not make it to the NRA convention that was held here in Nashville a couple of weekends ago. Uh, that, that's okay. I, because of that monster truck that rally, thing. you do have tickets for it. Right? So, yeah, well, <laughs> so I didn't join the NRA. Um, but I do have a big pickup truck. I do. So. I know that. Right, right. What about Hunt and Raffle? No, not yet. No, okay, well, soon enough. Anyway, we are also joined today by David Moser, who you might have heard earlier. He's with us here in the studio. David is academic director of the CET program in Beijing, a linguist by training, a philosopher by disposition, a gentleman by all counts. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> I think I'll say thank you. That's what you have to say. Southern gentleman. Today, uh, to, uh, today, we're going to look at the interplay between, on the one hand, nationalism, and particularly the virulent strand of nationalism one often sees in anti-Japanese nationalism, and on the other hand, censorship. So many times, probably beyond count on this show, we've talked about how Chinese authorities recognize the double-edged nature of anti-Japanese nationalism. I, I don't really mean to sound too cynical here, but I mean, I don't really believe that it's entirely a creation of the, the party state. But it actually has its roots in, in you know real historical grievances and um, and I think it would you know persist even without the encouragement of the, the CCP. But it's clear enough I think that it can be a very useful distraction and the classic you know rally around the flag effect. And it can also be pointed at by um, policymakers, by diplomats, and the PLA brass. You know this you know big fire of nationalism and say hey hey look see we're actually constrained by popular will and we're obliged to press these claims that our people clearly feel very passionate about. Uh, and so you can kind of hide behind that. But on, on the other hand, uh, China's economic relationship with Japan is still very extensive, very, very big trade partner, very valuable both to China and to Japan. And so Beijing may want to look occasionally like it's getting pushed around or pushed toward a more aggressive posture by its people, but it does not want to be in a position where it can actually be pushed into something catastrophic by popular opinion. And complicating all of this, the party is staked a lot uh, of of its its own you know claim to legitimacy on its record during the war of resistance on the, the mantle of anti Japanese nationalism that it claims so that you know one thing it does not want is for its legitimacy to be challenged by anyone who thinks that the CCP is being too soft on Tokyo so I've said this before and, t- and talked about how you know Beijing stands before the fire pit of anti Japanese nationalism. Uh, with a fan in one hand and a fire hose in the other. And I swear this is the last time I'll have used that phrase on this show. And you may punch me in the mouth, David, if I ever say this again. <laughs> well, on this show, I'm going to use it in talks and stuff. Cause, you know, it gets... I may do it anyway, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad there's a table in between. We have a table in the studio now, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah. reach you, yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, 
we uh, have never actually had a chance to talk about this fan and this fire hose. That's not a punch worthy <laughs> offense, right? But that ends today because today we welcome Christopher Cairns, who is a graduate student in political science at Cornell University. We welcome him warmly to Seneca. Great to have you on, Chris. Great to be on the show, Kaiser. So Chris has authored uh, or co-authored a paper along with uh, Associate Professor Alan Carlson of Cornell's political science uh, that's called Real World Islands in a Social Media Sea, Nationalism and Censorship on Weibo during the 2012 Diaoyu Senkaku Crisis. Uh, it's a great paper. Uh, David, you got a chance to read it. Jeremy, you too, right? You got a chance to take a... I did, indeed. Oh, very good. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to throw out the first question to Chris. What got you interested in this particular topic? Um, I think it was just... Uh, it was around uh, summer 2012 when I um, first started uh, getting into uh, censorship in China and how the government uh, controls the internet for various purposes, um, which is more of my own uh, core research interests. And um, I, at the time, I was working with uh, Alan at, at Cornell. Um, he's uh, working with me on my dissertation. And um, his thing is nationalism and particularly bottom-up nationalism. So um, this sort of sense of historical grievance that Chinese people, many, still feel uh, toward Japan um, and memories of, of the, the War of Resistance. And um, so I'd taken a class with him, actually, uh, where we talked a lot during the semester about uh, nationalism um, and particularly how it affects China's relations with its neighbors. Um, and about that time, so August and September 2012, the, the Diaoyi protests broke out. And um, I was on Weibo, and uh, it wasn't, you know, a scientific sample or anything, but I was just continually browsing during those days and and. Uh, I seemed to see so much anger was going on um, with people. Uh, and it seemed to be, I, I didn't really break it down into the, the categories that we have in this paper at the time, um, but it seems to be people were both critical of their own government and and critical of Japan. Um, again, at that point, it wasn't at all scientific, but we felt, so I went to Alan with this, and I'm like, um, this is really interesting, um, you know, because Alan had used this this double edged sword phrase for to describe nationalism, um, and I not, was like, not, not the fan and the fire hose. No, 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 it's a, it's a double edged sword. <laughs> and so um, I forget which of which of us it was, um, but the idea sort of evolved um, to do a paper uh, initially focused on the more on the nationalism side of things uh, to just sort of. We've got all this Weibo data out there, and I knew that uh, the uh, a team at the University of Hong Kong, uh, led by King Wa Fu, uh, for a, a data collection project called Weibo Scope, was yeah, Weibo sucking Scope. all this Weibo data um, for some of the most influential users online. Um, and so I knew this resource was out there, and that we could we could get a hold of it. And so I went to Alan. I'm like, why don't we somehow use this Weibo data to measure nationalism? And he's He's really big on measuring public opinion. Like, how do you do that? Uh, and so that just sort of got us started talking. Yeah, and Weibo Scope must have been a, a godsend. So you ended up taking 40,000 uh, people. And how did you decide who, who you were going to use? Uh, well, actually, we ended up using their entire sample because... That's the entire sample is 40,000? Okay. Uh, that's right, about 40,000. Um, and they're almost all uh, very high-profile users. Big V types. Big Vs, yeah. Okay. And... Um, that includes actually, I mean, presumably, since you're looking at what's censored, you need to, to to have posts that have been deleted as well. Right. And that's really uh, the amazing uh, contribution that the, the Hong Kong team made for this data is they were able to collect it 
quickly enough that um, at least some of it, it wasn't perfect, but at least some of it could be uh, grabbed from uh, Sina's um, programming interface, so pulled out of the, the website um, before it got censored. And so then you can you can know, you can measure censorship that way uh, because if you see it here today and you grab it and then you check the same, you know, user feeds tomorrow and it's gone, then you know it's been censored. And so you have a measure of that. And that was really a something incredible uh, in terms of a uh, an engineering feat and also just to have the foresight to come up with that strategy for measuring uh, censorship. Mm. David? There's, there's something called Free Weibo. There's an app and some of those things that claim to have grabbed things that were censored on Weibo and you can reaccess them. Yeah, this is the greatfire.org guys, right? That's right. That's right. All right. Did you, well, I just bring that up for no reason. You probably didn't use it for, for your data, but. Not for this, but um, yeah, they're greatfire.org, uh, what they're doing over there <clears throat> is the same sort of thing. Um, and uh, I mean, in the, the paper by Gary, Gary King, Jennifer Pan, and Margaret Roberts, uh, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. We will. At Harvard, um, they dealt with the same challenge, which is how do you measure censorship? How do you grab the data? before the sensors get to it. So all these different teams now um, are out there trying to, to collect this data. Also, just maybe to point out the obvious for the listeners, that, you're, that you do it, your sample of posts doesn't have to be even pretend to be representative because you weren't uh, testing the posters, you were testing the, the level of censorship. So just to make that clear before people start well, going I mean, that I mean, you were also looking at, 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 at actual sentiment as well. And I'm, but I, to... I assume that doesn't matter where it comes from. It's more like what the government's reaction to it was. So they didn't really care who, who uh, was doing sure. it. Right? Chris, what, what would you say? I mean... um, well, so I think they do care um, that it was the big V who uh, were spreading it. Um, so uh, our sample is actually highly biased toward the big V. But um, you could argue that that's exactly who we should have been looking at. For yeah, that's what I mean, for Kaiser. Yeah. It did matter a lot. <laughs> so you misunderstood what I meant. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. I mean, you're you're a, a gentleman, as I said, and I, I must treat you in, in a similarly gentlemanly right. manner. Okay, um, Chris, what was your operating hypothesis coming into this? Were you persuaded by the kind of conventional wisdom about Chinese internet censorship? Um, and I'm not even sure what that is. Well, I mean, what is the conventional? Yeah, exactly. Wisdom good, about? good, good, Jeremy. Right, exactly. What uh, is? Or were you expecting, you know, to find that manipulation was, you know, fairly sophisticated? Um, I mean, I I had a sense at the time um, that there was a lot of variation in what gets censored. Um, I mean, I I think in my you know the uh, from the very beginning, I had I didn't have any specific hypotheses other than the King Pan and Roberts paper out there as a big hypothesis that we were kind of testing uh, exactly what pattern the censorship would follow. So why is the government censoring um, maybe some posts? Or we can, Jeremy or, or Dave, maybe you guys can review quickly what the essential thesis of the King Pan and Roberts paper from Harvard, papers from Harvard was. If you won't, I'm going to. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to say what that is. So essentially, they they looked at a lot of social media posts, um, mainly actually from from uh, from BBSs and from Tiaba, not from uh, Weibo itself. But their uh, their findings were were that organizational language, calls to action, anything that actually tried to put people into the streets or together into groups was very very apt to get you censored. Whereas criticism of actual individual politicians, of actual individual policies. Uh, of the state uh, at large, were not apt to get censored. Is that is that a fair characterization? That's that's basically right. Yeah. Um, so collective action 
street protests, boycotts, petition signings, things of that nature where people mobilize in some way, um, any discussion of that, uh, they say should be censored, and but ordinary criticisms should not. Um, one thing we wanted to test, and it wasn't a clear hypothesis at first, we sort of came into it as we actually started to analyze the data some months later, um, is, is nationalism an exception? Right. Um, is there something particular? I mean, we, we knew that um, the government had allowed previous waves of nationalist protests in 2010, um, in 2005, uh, in 1999. There are these recurring waves, it seems, every few years where there's some sort of incident or confrontation that happens um, between China and and some foreign country, frequently Japan, and <laughs> really, um, if not always, Japan, right. if not always Japan, and oh, um, except for ninety nine. I mean, well, right, two thousand and one. Ninety nine is now a distant memory compared to the current. Right, two thousand three. When was the EP spy plane? There was no EP three. There were there was no protest. That was what was really interesting. The EP three spy plane did not generate a, a a public protest. I remember that very clearly because I went. And watched all these camera crews sitting during at the embassy district, all camped out on lawn chairs, waiting for the rocks or waiting for the buses. Uh, that's waiting. that's true. And yeah, it wasn't the happened. coordinated thing that happened in 1999. That's true. Right, right, right. Anyway, um, so I may, maybe I think uh, we've we've gotten that out of the way. Let's let's also look at the chronology of the period that you cover. You look at 49 days. Is that correct? That, right. That's in that's August correct, and September yeah. of the year 2012. And I guess I want to throw in since we're talking about dates, 2012. Um, this is a you know this is pre Xi Jinping. This is a, a different time, right. and so I mean I, I know that when there have been articles written in recent months um, reiterating the the King Pan and Roberts paper, they a lot of them get shouted down as being totally irrelevant to our present. Uh, that 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 this isn't any longer really the case. That you know that criticism, even fairly mild criticism, can often result in censorship today. Uh, I don't know whether that's entirely true. I mean, just my, my my gut says that that probably is the case that King Pam and Roberts was true of a time. But uh, let's talk about this time. This can can I also uh, add another uh, question to that uh, about the time, which mm-hmm. is that um, I mean, Weibo's height was 2011, and the height of Weibo as a platform for criticism. Uh, was the Wenzhou train crash uh, that summer in 2011. Uh, and that was also the wake-up call for the government. I, I wouldn't and, agree with that. Um, I, during I, I, the Weibo, during the, uh, the weekend of the Wenzhou train crash, it was quite clear that the government didn't know what the hell they were dealing with. Um, and a lot of what you see after that uh, was because they suddenly realized they had this problem to deal with. But it took quite some time for them to really figure out what was going on. Uh, so when looking at 2012, how much should we say that the government didn't really know what they were doing? Uh, therefore, it's difficult to draw out a particular strategy from it because they were still trying to figure it out. Uh, and this comes from me, who's somebody who doesn't believe that the Communist Party always knows exactly what they're doing. Um, so, I mean, my take on it is that 2012, we're still looking at a work in progress in terms of the censorship strategy. Hmm. Um, so I, uh, I beg to differ, very much so. Um, I think um, 2011 was uh, certainly a learning moment. And, um, you know, uh, I think the when Joe train crashed, you're right. It was a, very much a, a shock to the party uh, that uh, Weibo was capable of spreading this kind of counter narrative about what was happening and that they needed to more tightly control this counter narrative. 
by 2012, um, it was, I think it's a very interesting year. Um, and uh, there's actually, uh, in addition to the, the, the Diaoyu Islands protest, there's a couple other uh, cases uh, I'm looking at uh, for my own dissertation, um, including what happened with uh, Boa Xilai and uh, uh, discussions of uh, that, that whole scandal during 2012. So 2012 is a really interesting year. On the one hand, um, I do think that they learned a lot from the Wenzhou train crash um, in terms of the need, the, the need to censor Weibo and to monitor it, to watch it closely. So by 2012, um, I think you did see tightening control. Um, you had an attempt in April of 2012 to enforce real name registration on Sina to try to hold bloggers accountable for um, what they were saying. That effort did not succeed at the time, but they haven't given up since. Um, but the effort was there, and I think the attention was there. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, bef uh, she had not yet taken over as of, um, you know, focusing now on August and September, 2012. Um, I mean, as far as knowing what they're doing, um, I mean, I would say, and I think this is what we say in the paper that if there were any time in which the party should know what it's doing and be aware of events and be able to react relatively quickly to uh, censor Weibo or maybe not to censor Weibo. Which um, it, it would be during these protests. Here, right. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so let's 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 look at the chronology of the events of those forty nine days in that summer and that fall of two thousand twelve that you cover. I mean, because a lot happened um, with re respect to the the Diaoyu Islands. So let's let's first talk about what was what, you know the facts on the ground there with mm -hmm. the nationalization and so forth. Um, sure. So uh, the dispute started um, when. Uh, a proposal began to circulate. I think it was a month or two before that, so June or July, I forget exactly when, um, for the uh, right-wing governor of Tokyo municipality, uh, Shintaro Ishihara, um, wanted to purchase the islands um, from a, a private Japanese owner who'd ha who had held title to them. Um, and the Japanese government um, felt... I think quite understandably that this could be a very large diplomatic issue uh, because here you have this right-wing governor um, saying, you know, he's going to take the islands um, and uh, effectively, you know, hold on to them um, in an attempt to make sure that they remain Japanese territory, to have Tokyo municipality purchase them. So it's um, not just this, this, this private owner and, you know, you, you sort of treat them more as part of the national territory. Um, the Japanese government thinking that this could, you know, stoke considerable controversy in, in relations with China, um, tried to preempt Ishihara uh, by uh, having the, the national government purchase the, the islands instead. Um, and I think they may have underestimated um, sort of the optics of uh, the national government as opposed to, to Ishihara or a private owner actually uh, taking over the islands. Um, so they, anyway, all of this discussion about uh, Ishihara's plan to purchase the islands um, was circulating as of July. Um, a team of activists, uh, don't quote me on this, I think it was uh, mostly sorry, Hong Kong you're, you're being quoted on this. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Um, so, so it was Hong Kong activists, and I think there was one or two mainland activists also, and or Taiwanese activists who were part of the group. Um, uh, which were part of the um, Federation to Defend the Diaoyu Islands, um, sure. set sail uh, from Hong Kong. 
uh, a few days in, in mid-August, so on August 12th. Um, and it was very interesting that they were allowed to go because similar activist groups had made attempts to sail to the islands and in the past. Ported, and been deported. Always, right, always. Right. right. So they were allowed to go by Hong Kong authorities. Um, it's questionable whether or not the mainland actually authorized them to go. Um, but, but regardless, they were allowed to sail. Um, and they successfully landed on one of the islands. So they swam to shore and um, planted both a Chinese flag and, I believe, an ROC flag. Um, on the island. Just to really complicate things. <laughs> Just to really make things complicated. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Taiwanese flag for people not familiar with right, that. Right, right, right. right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm being polite. We're in polite company here. Um, so ta- Taiwanese flag. So both... Let's, yeah, let's uh, be straight. <laughs> okay. They're both <laughs> Chinese flags, by the way. <laughs> Just to remind yeah, right. you, one, one is a provincial flag. Right, exactly. um, an interesting side note to that, the, uh, the pictures of um, the Taiwanese flag were censored on social media, and they were um, banned from uh, mainland media reporting, not Mm. surprisingly. um, uh, But actually, I think one of the early photos um, before the censorship actually came into effect did make the rounds on Weibo. And and we didn't actually have images in our data, but we could tell from what people were saying Mm -hmm. that there was this this image of the the, uh, ROC flag. Anyway, United Greater China Front here, um, trying to send a signal um, to Japan that um, at least this activist group, if not the whole Chinese people, is very dissatisfied with this plan to, quote-unquote, nationalize the islands. So that was August 15th. Um, the activists were immediately detained uh, by, by the Japanese forces. Um, they were held for two days uh, until the 17th. Um, on the 15th, there were some initial street protests in Beijing in front of the Japanese embassy. Mm-hmm. So um, protests responded very quickly. Uh, I believe they had some connections to the Federation of Protected Yaoi Islands. They were able to mobilize, and they were allowed to protest on the 15th in front of the embassy. In fact, guarded by police. Uh, guarded to by to police, To make sure right. that, yeah. Right. Um, Japanese, a group of Japanese activists, after this occurred, um, announced their intentions to also sail to the islands, land on them, um, and plant a Japanese flag in response. And they and that, did. That's when Jeremy and I decided to sail there ourselves and plant our Seneca flag there with <laughs> the, the azure-winged magpie. And, and we were successful in doing that, which is... And then we, we yeah, we ran afoul of the, the McDonald's flag, which was f- planted there by a team of people dressed as Ronald. It was very... Right, it was a free-for-all free right. for, all for right. those islands yeah, for, was, for a few days. Jeremy, those were good times, though, right? They were. They were. Uh, right. The good old days. Um, so, okay, so we're at August 17th now. So now we're at August 17th. The activists are released. So you think, okay, they were detained for two days. Clearly this will trigger some small protests. They were released relatively quickly. It's been about 48 hours. This is all going to go quietly away, right? Huh. Oh, unfortunately <laughs> not. Um, so not only is the Japanese team underway, but by this point the protests have begun to snowball mm-hmm. in Beijing. Um, you have uh, larger demonstrations. And by the weekend of August 18th and 19th, Saturday and Sunday, you have protests in a, a few different Chinese cities. So this is the, the first wave. Um, and we, Your tracking begins on what day on the 15th? Um, actually, we start our sample on August 12th to give okay. us a few days to build up to sure. this. Uh, so then, um, all right, so we're at August 17th. The activists have been released. Um, you would think this would all go away quietly. Uh, unfortunately not. No such luck. No such luck. The Japanese activists land on the island successfully two days later, on the 19th. 
Um, on the 18th and 19th, there are a much larger group of street demonstrations, demonstrators numbering in the thousands, possibly tens of thousands, in multiple Chinese cities. I think by that point, there was Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, uh, major cities, perhaps a few smaller ones in there. Um, and they are completely allowed to demonstrate. There are uh, fewer, if, if any, reports of um, police suppression of the protests. I note that these are the cities that the new uh, PAN study would, would say are the deepest blue. To oh, underscore my idea yeah, that yeah. You know, nationalism doesn't really fit that. Anyway, go on. See the previous the, Seneca podcast. So, <laughs> so-called <laughs> cosmopolitan coastal centers bringing out the largest hordes of, of extreme nationalists to criticize Japan. Mm. Not very... Doesn't fit. May, doesn't, not very no, no, globalized. No, 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 uh, but no. maybe we can square the circle by the time yeah. we're done here. Okay. Um, so yeah, another wave of protests a week later. Uh, on, I think, it the August uh, 25th and 26th. Mm-hmm. After that... So how, uh, yeah. more vociferous than the ones on the 18th? No, those, those were sort of an echo. Okay. Um, th- there wasn't too much going on. Then you have a long, quiet period, all the way until... Um, September 18th. September 11th. 11th, September 11th. September wow. 11th. And no, 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 no cosmic significance. No, there, no, by pure coincidence, September 11th, um, the protests start up again. Um, the Japanese government um, officially nationalizes the island. So this is the, the uh, national government in Japan purchasing the Diaoyu Islands on that day. They, they uh, approve the sale to the, to the Japanese government. Um, so that's happened. Uh, online so social media chatter, including on Weibo, spikes um, actually in anticipation of the uh, signing, uh, the purchase a couple days earlier. So it's already uh, uh, on an uptick. And then on the following weekend, so 12, 13, 14, that was an 11th, so that'd be a Tuesday. Um, on the 15th and 16th, so Saturday and Sunday, you saw the largest wave of street protests in China since the uh, June 4th protests of 1989. Well, the pre-June 4th protests. Pre-June 4th. (laughs) The pre-June 4th. uh, The protests of spring of 1989. Sure, sure, sure. So really... Yeah, we were all witness to that. I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, overturning of cars, burning, setting fire to vehicles. People who had purchased Japanese cars uh, were... were Beaten up. That's right. And there, there were, you know, Japanese, I mean, you know, your, your, your sushi and ramen places had their windows smashed. And yeah, lots of Shut ugliness. Down, yeah. Right. Um, so well, it was a lot more of a, a violent wave than what happened in August. It, it was much larger. Um, and uh, it lasted all the way up until um, September 18th, which was the anniversary. Which is a significant of, day, of course. Yeah. yeah right. Invasion of Manchuria. Right, the Mukden right. incident. The Mukden incident. Right. So, um, how then does the censorship map against this forty-nine day chronology? I mean, what's happening censorship-wise in the mid-September flare-up, and then what's happening again in the mid-late September flare-up? Um, so, this is really uh, what we. This is the nub of what you're. Right. This is the the heart and soul of our of our paper. What we found, um, and it was not a finding. We went in with a clear hypothesis before. This was something we we dug through the censorship data and analyzed trends over time, and we just sort of stumbled upon this and um, tried to give meaning and and interpretation to to what we had found, which is um, censorship was 
for the whole 49-day period, on average, was pretty high on the order of the upper 50, so maybe 57, 58% on average throughout 57 the 57 to 58% of Of all Weibo posts that were relevant to talking about Diaoyidao, so call them topic-relevant posts, um, during this time period were, were censored. Wow. Yeah, so censorship over on, on the whole was very heavy. High year, yeah. Um, and it was higher in September than it was in August. Um, and it was moderately high in August, except for August 18th, um, which is our, our most significant finding. Um, on August 18th. So What's this August is, 18th now? August 18th is three days after the, the Baodiao, or Protect the Diao Islands activists, landed on the Diaoyu. It's one day before the team of Japanese activists land on the islands. Right, okay. It's the day after they get released. So it's, it's a very sensitive time. Right, right, right. There's already street protests underway. Censorship goes from the 50s down to about 25%. So let's let the floodgates open. For some reason, they decided, let's fan... Oh, I'm, I'm, we're not using that. <laughs> I, so I think I get... I get today, oh, you oh, said. Yeah, after today, today, after yeah. today, oh. right. Uh, yeah, that's right. So um, we interpret this as very deliberate. Um, we don't see any reason or explanation why censorship would, for one day and one day only, drop from one day, fairly one high day only. <laughs> all the way down to, to, to 25% and then you know, rebound. The, the August 19th, it was back up to in about 40%, so mm-hmm. still not total censorship again. And then by August 20th, it was back up in the 50s. So, Jeremy, does this surprise you? Um, no, not yeah. really. Um, I mean, clearly, this is an issue that is is very particular. Um, uh, you know, the only other thing that comes close to it is a very similar set of issues in the South China Sea uh, with, um, you know, uh, territorial disputes. Um, um, and the government... Oh manipulation of public debate sure. is uh, clearly something that uh, uh, is a subject of... Um, um, Drink more coffee can... and then we'll get back to it. Jeremy, <laughs> let, me, let me jump in right there. I actually, um, I, I don't necessarily see it as, as manipulation in this case. Um, I, I would tend more with what, what Kaiser was saying about the sort of the genuine grassroots nature of... Um, nationalism and particularly that crowd of people online and at, at the time were very active on Weibo because Weibo was still pretty pretty popular at the time um, who really uh, without as far as we can tell in this case and I'll get into how we think we know this um, any prompting from the government on August 18th really raised a stir um, and these people on that day, I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I'm not saying that the, this is a, a, cre- a creation of the government. Um, I mean, I think manipulation is both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is uh, one of the uh, areas of, of public debate where the government will, uh, you know, um, as the Chinese has it, you know, will sometimes be very uh, strict and sometimes be very lax. And I think uh, that it is sometimes very deliberate. Uh, sometimes. Uh, it's possibly they're riding a tiger, they're trying to control something, you know, it's difficult for them to know how much to censor and how much not to censor. Mm. But this is uh, definitely an area where, I mean, the government has a a strategy that sometimes fails and sometimes works of 
using public opinion uh, for their own ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you don't only see this in social media, you see it in, in the state media, uh, the official media, uh, where there is more or less encouragement of nationalist feelings. So, um, I mean, I, th- I think uh, finding that this is the case is fits in with, you know, what we know of the way the state media operates. And not only with cyber protests, but with physical protests as well. That's the pattern that goes back as far as you can remember in 1999, the same thing. They, they not only allowed students to go to the U.S. Embassy, they actually provided Bus- buses, buses from Peking there. University yeah. and let it right. happen for a while and then, then you know, cut down on it afterwards. So, I mean, uh, I have one quick question that before, because some people are going to be wondering about this. We know that the actual censorship being done was not done directly by the government, but sort of mandated, but they they make uh, Sina use their own in-house censors to do it. Can you comment just really quickly on uh, the, 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 what's the word? <clears throat> the implications for this, the fact that it wasn't a direct censorship on the part of the government. Sure. Um, I mean, I think in this case, uh, you're right. So, so Sina employs its own censors. And um, the model in China is that uh, the government holds the internet companies accountable through various forms of regulation and pressure. But it, the onus is on the companies themselves to to keep a clean house that, you know, um, purges or, or censors um, content undesirable politics political content from right. the government. So the government was monitoring Sina. <laughs> so you can be pretty sure that, that, that it tracks what the government was allowing as well. Is that what you're saying? That's right. So um, in a case like this, um, you will have, um, maybe not right away, although we think part of our why we say this was so deliberate is we feel that because of the buildup in July and because of the events of August 15th, the government had to have had, we have no smoking gun for who was thinking what, but we feel that they had to have had fair warning that you know, social instability was going to rise. There were street protests already. And um, so that's partly why we interpret this as the government's choice to either not send an order to Sina, to just silence. And Sina, what's their business? Well, this generates an enormous amount of traffic to have a hot topic like Weibo. Okay, so let's, let's sketch out what the, what the curve looks like then. Okay. So we have a, a, you know, you establish a baseline by looking at uh, data from August 12th. So from the twelfth to the fifteenth, you're at at this sort of fifty percentish range, right? There's already it's already in the air. Ishihara is already planning on on doing the nationalization, or, or I'm sorry, he, he's he's already planning. Uh, then on the fifteenth, you see this this basically let's drop our guard, let's let them say what they want. Uh, what 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 does censorship look like further down? Um, so censorship uh, picks up again. Uh, then the, a day or two later, um, on the the nineteenth and twentieth, it's it's back up to the forties, back up to fifty, and then it stays more or less in the fifty percent range, so near the average through End of the August, latter part of August September, into September. September, and then once the second wave of street tra- street protests unfolds, starting September eleventh and continuing for one week, it goes even higher. It goes into the sixty percent. Even so they're into clearly the- in fire fire hose. At actually fire hose mode at that by point. September with for that wave, but they but continue that to, allow it to in the, the ugliness and the, and the yeah. enormity of I mean, well yeah but I mean it's a, mo- yeah. a lot easier to clamp down on it I mean there's no there's much fewer there's much lower costs to doing uh, online censorship than there is to actually deploy the riot police and 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 try to you know stop them from going wild in the streets that's true what's yeah. interesting though also is is and I thought this was very very interesting uh, you look at the sentiment you do a lot of sentiment analysis in this and we'll talk about how you you go about this because I think it's very interesting but um, you find the rise of a lot of moderate voices uh, as as the protests go on as as this 49 days rolls 
drills further along. Um, what, what would, I mean, there's one phrase in particular that's basically, you know, patri- or, I'm sorry, rational patriotism, which suddenly seems to be what everyone is tweeting about, what everyone is talking about on Weibo, right? Talk, talk about what happened there and wh- what you think was, you know, gave rise to this and, and why the sort of timbre completely shifted during that time. Um, so, I mean, that phrase, so rational patriotism, releasing Aigua, uh, mostly occurred in September. It started actually a little bit in August after the first wave of protests, but it really picked up during the second wave in September and toward the latter part of the second wave. So during that week, September 11th to September 18th, it would be like September 15th onward. You saw this surge in um, rational patriotism um, sentiments. And um, it's very tempting to interpret this as uh, state media intervening in Weibo and being ordered, which you can do with state media. To they can the you know the um, the censors can instruct journalists or editors to prioritize this or that or certain themes. You don't think that was the case here? Um, it may have been the case that uh, so we didn't disaggregate newspaper tweets on Weibo from other ordinary oh, okay. kinds of tweets, okay. um, uh, but. We did note that there were a lot of what seemed to be rather organic riffs and sort of popular phrasings of Li Sing Aigua. People seemed to sort of be taking ownership of the phrase mm-hmm. from all the, the Weibo posts we read through. So it may have been state-induced initially, you know, let's push this counter phrase in an attempt to cool down. The, but alongside Li Sing Aigua, we also saw a lot of people who um, were really dissatisfied with uh, the sort of violence and destruction that some of the street protesters were were carrying out then with, um, for example, smashing of Japanese branded cars. Um, you saw a lot of comments alongside that leasing Aigua, people saying, you know, um, Chinese people should not smash other Chinese people's cars, you know, even if they're Japanese brand. So I think the bro- what happened was the yeah, broader public... Smash the car of anyone who says that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the broader public uh, tuned in. So um, more people were paying attention to what was going on in September because September was a bigger wave of protests. And the broader public is more moderate than the more extreme voices who sort of dominated the discussion in August, uh, who were more tuned in then. And uh, so it's not surprising that the Li Sing phrase, people urged to be rationals, got a lot of retweets, even if mm. it was originally a, a state media thing. Jeremy, David, you guys were both watching this really carefully as it unfolded. Do you remember feeling... Uh, I mean, do, do, do you largely agree with Chris's assessment of, of how that, that, that kind of moderate sentiment seemed to, to, to rise up? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, me that, too. That, that sounds, sounds right, right to me. Yeah, uh, yeah maybe. I, from my memory of it, it, it just seemed like it was all incendiary. <laughs> I don't, uh, rem- I don't yeah. remember much moderate. Just a lot of people I might know who were pretty ferociously anti-Japanese were pretty yeah. recoiling in horror as they well, saw the- that part of it. Yeah, the violence against the cars and this kind of thing. Right. right. But because, I, don't I mean, also, I, I mean, the kind of cynical people that I tend to follow more closely are all also aware and sometimes, you know, posting to Weibo about how all these douchebags engaged in violence, you know, own Japanese electronic products. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so uh, I, I do. Uh, it wasn't just mindless uh, nationalism and violence. I mean, the the, the rise of the moderates. I think uh, that seems seems accurate to me. Um, although I'm struggling to recall the exact time sequence, but I, I think Chris has laid it out very very well for us. So, Chris, you guys come to three basic conclusions about this, right? That's right. Um, 
I just so, want to hear hear what you what you basically have to say. I mean, that it explains all these phenomena. What 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 do you what what were your findings? So, and just to be clear again, um, what we're trying to explain is why high anti-government sentiment. So people, that's, that's a point we haven't actually worked in. Yes, yeah, let me do that to, first. Right, let's do that first. So right. on August eighteenth, the finding about so censorship was low. The government was open to floodgates is in part so interesting because that was also the day that saw the highest amount of anti. Beijing criticism. So in other words, Chinese people angry at their own government. And we read through to figure out, okay, well, what are they angry about? Uh, they weren't angry, as you might think, you know, sort of dissidents or people outside the system might be with, you know, cor- corruption or lack of democracy or what what have you. Um, there was actually some of that in there. But the majority of people were almost, they were angry that the government wasn't showing more pussies, backbone. Like yeah, a bunch, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they weren't, you know, Show some backbone, get out there. You know, there were even calls uh, for uh, you know, Military bomb action. the islands yeah, and yeah. such phrases. Yeah, so, that's it. That's the... so, so people were pissed. There's the a sense of deja vu yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the May Fourth <laughs> movement, for God's sake. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, pictures of Chairman Mao at some of the uh, yes, that's right. Pictures Look, of Chairman Mao. Yes, right. Right. you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's um. Okay, so uh, that that's interesting. I mean, I, and I'm 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 really I was negligent not to have brought that up earlier. Yeah, I think that's one of those salient points here. So uh, August fifteenth comes. There's an awful a- lot. And, and, 18th. Uh, August eighteenth comes, and and it's like whoa, way too much anti-Beijing sentiment. Let's let's shut it down again. Is that why then? Um, that's that's a really interesting question, actually, and it's not something we can tell with our data whether censorship went back up again. In As response right. to like the fact that people are angry at the government, I we tend to interpret it, uh, and we have uh, no clear basis other than the sequence of events being what it is here to say this. But that they actually, um, they the government knew that it would get a lot of flack for um, if it opened up the floodgates, and that people would be angry at Beijing, and they would they'd be directing their anger inward at the central government and not outward at Japan because they blame. Their own governments, it's like their own government's fault for being weak. And they, I think, so we hypothesize, and this would be an interesting thing to test with more work or see what other people think, um, that they actually precisely allowed it because they knew that people would be pissed at them and that others, so Japan, the United States, would see this and be like, hey, whoa, you know, the Chinese people are pissed at their own government Let's tread lightly and maybe not press too hard if it comes to some sort of implicit mm. negotiation. Um, and this actually gets to our first explanation for what happened is uh, the government allowed this sort of wave of anger at itself in August. Um, basically, if, if you let people criticize you, it makes you look that much tougher and that much more determined to do something. Because after the word is out that people are pissed at their own government, you dare not back down. Because then you look weak, and you look like you've really, at that point, sold out the people. Because you've heard what they, you've heard their anger toward you, and then you know if you shut it down, you 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 pay a price with your, your own legitimacy. I, I I fully understand that. That's a, I mean, I think it's a, I I'm I'm going to go with that. I like that interpretation. <laughs> Jeremy, does that sound sound to you? It does sound sound to me. Although I mean, I still would put forward the case that in 2012. The, the government was still kind of figuring out what it was doing. Um, so what we may interpret after the fact as strategy may also have been them kind of 
you know, uh, playing it by ear, not really knowing what they were doing. Sure, but I mean, the narrative um, emerged so quickly that, hey, you know, hey, we're, our hands are kind of tied. Look, it's the popular anger. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not just pissed at Japan. They're pissed at us. We can't sh- show weakness on this. Cut us a little slack here. I mean, you understand that we're going to, you know, we're going to saber rattle because that's what our people want. If we don't, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're in trouble. I mean, the foreign ministry, so uh, Hong Lei, the spokesman for the foreign ministry, came out within a day or two after the, the activists were detained and put out a very strong statement immediately demanding their release and putting out the traditional rhetoric reasserting China's claims to sovereignty over the islands. So they'd already gone on record as saying that this Japanese action of planning to purchase the islands was unacceptable as early as August. Great. Um, and so there were three three things that you concluded. So that's that was your essentially your first conclusion. Right. Um, so that's story number one. So story number two is uh, that they they allowed people to be angry at the government in August um, because effectively they had to. Uh, you can't just suppress anger the even if it's theory, right. right. So fascia, you got to let people vent off this anger, or they might turn it to more constructive purposes. So if they're if they're saying destructive it, purposes, destructive. <laughs> let, let's do that again. Yeah, you got to let people release this anger, or they might turn it to to less constructive and more destructive purposes. Um, and so, you know, one this theory would go basically well if they're saying it on Weibo. Um, they may also be saying it in the streets, sure. But if you don't let them say it on Weibo, they have no choice but to say it in the streets. Yeah, this is familiar mm-hmm. to us, right, Jeremy? We've seen this this narrative many a time. Mm-hmm. And the third. And third um, is basically so these the first two explanations are sort of m- instrumental and strategic. So the government either they're trying to be strategic by acting tough to the outside world, or they're trying to. You deal with this pressure that's building up um, by blowing off, letting some netizens blow off steam domestically. The third one uh, is not like playing a game. It's more about, you know, what they believe. So in other words, it's elites, uh, and this is more of uh, more Allen's own research into sort of doing a whole bunch of elite interviews with policymakers in China. Um, and uh, basically his take on it, uh, which is that uh, these people have drunk the Kool- their own Kool-Aid. Um, you know, they really, really are angry at Japan. And um, they knew in August that they didn't have a whole lot of sort of real world options to, to express this anger um, because of economic dependence between the two countries, um, because of the high costs of any sort of military action. You know, they're, they're rational in one sense um, in sort of dealing with this, but on the other sense, they want to send a, a signal for no other reason that they're angry. So right, they're how do you do that? To know well, that they need to handle their the pe- Why not let right. the people speak? We, we understand this is an elites and uh, bond between the elites and people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. I mean, that, that, it's a fascinating paper. I really highly recommend that you, you take... I mean, has it actually been published yet or were we privy to an early copy? Uh, this is a pre-publication draft. Uh, it's been accepted by the China Quarterly, um, oh, and it should be published uh, at some point in 2016. We're okay, not sure so which issue. Look for it in next year in the China Quarterly. Uh, you can, well, you know what's in the paper now, and it, I, I really highly recommend that you look at it. it. It touches on so many kind of salient issues today. So um, thanks very much, Chris, for, for taking the time to come in. Uh, and let's now move to the portion of our show where we make recommendations and begin, as is our custom, with Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn.
Um, okay, so I'm going to recommend a blog called Mongols, China, and the Silk Road. Uh, and the URL is Mongols, China, and the Silk Road. That's a really fucking long URL. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very easy to remember URL, but it's basically about Mongols, China, and the Silk Road. Uh, and it's just interesting if you're interested in uh, history of, you know, High Asia uh, and Silk Road. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, who writes it? Uh, I haven't got it open. And I don't remember his name right now. Okay. Um, he is Dutch, I believe. Ah, okay. Very good. Mongols. Hans van der Roon. I just uh, did you read that Hans with your like your Hans van der Roon? Sorry, Hans. I mean, no, read read it like like not with your Afrikaans kind of, so that we know. Not with my some... Afrikaans. Hans van Roon. Okay, there you go. Kind of see that's <laughs> Can you understand now? Much better. Thank you. <laughs> David, what do you have for us? Um, Chris just mentioned uh, these uh, periodic uh, messages from the propaganda ministry, or you know, telling uh, media outlets uh, certain aspects of the story not to emphasize or not emphasize. Uh, just a reminder: those some of those are those are archived on the Di China Digital Times. Uh, I think they call it the Ministry of Truth or directives right? from the Ministry of Truth, yeah. right? Directives from the Ministry of Truth, and they are archived, so you can actually get into those and see. These are these are basically from an insider uh, in the media, or is it from the propaganda ministry? We really don't know. We don't know, but 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 it, supposedly in, it's various people in the media system, right? They're journalists leaked, journalists or editors. They're leaked and anonymous, but they're supposedly. But, but this is from that site, the Digital China Digital Times. There's a there's a translation they did of a of a blog post by a historian named Feng Xuerong, who's based in uh, Hong Kong. It's called Five Great Jokes of Chinese History. And what's interesting is it touches on, I just came across this as we were getting ready for the podcast, but it, uh, it's, it's, it's this historian talking, uh, telling some uncomfortable truths about the way that people sort of instinctively behave in nationalistic ways. For example, you know, believing that, you know, China has never been the foreign aggressor ever in, right. in, in history, right. or that an example he gives is the, the Daoyu Islands, you know, that they oh, they've always belonged to us. He talks about being in a cab, you know, and the, the driver just says, you know, oh, the Dowies are Chinese. And he says, really? How do you know that? And the, well, they, they just are. And, you know, these, you know, inner Mongolia always belonged to China. Taiwan always belonged to China. So it, it's, it's a very uh, blunt, very, it's something that you would say, they wouldn't, you would seem like you wouldn't dare say online, especially if you're a historian. Of course, he's based in Hong Kong. But it wasn't censored. It's right there. It gives it a good example of the kind of uh, vibrant discourse that's still on Weibo, you know, even though uh, you know it's 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 been muted. But it's just sort of interesting to read it, and and you can read it in translation on the China Digital Times. It, it's called just called Five Great Jokes of Chinese History in the by uh, Feng Xierong. Okay, Chris, your turn. Um, so I would recommend. Um, See, I would uh, recommend uh, while we're on the topic of censorship, uh, I have to give a shout out um, to my friend um, Jason Eng, um, who has yeah. done a lot. I of, love Jason Eng. Um, he, he recently put out a book uh, called "Blocked on Weibo," um, and it's, it's a couple of years old now, right? If it's uh, it's like what, a year and a half, yeah, come okay. up in two years. Two now? years, yeah, two years. So it's great. It's great. Uh, time great flies. Stuff, yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's a great book, um, and it really gives some some content to uh, some some substance to what gets censored and what doesn't. And actually, on that note, um, you might want to look at the, the Citizen Labs website in Toronto. Um, it's a research 
group there that does a lot of really sort of nitty-gritty research on the technical aspects of, of censorship and the Great Firewall and such things. Right. I mean, they're, they're doing really excellent work. All too familiar, unfortunately, with recent work by the Citizens Lab. Anyway, um, my recommendation, and, uh, you know, here on Cynical, sometimes we record more than one show in a week, and it's not always clear what order we put them out in, so it's entirely possible that you'll be hearing this after we've already talked to the author of the piece that I intend to recommend right now, which is, uh, who is Chris Beam, who's been on the show before. Uh, he's going to be talking about, anyone ever read that terrific David Foster Wallace piece called, uh, a supposedly fun thing I will never do again, in which he goes on a cruise ship and writes about it. Uh, I mean, at great length, writes about you know his experience <laughs> on a cruise ship. Well, Chris Beam has, has reprised this, except this time he went on on a Carnival cruise liner uh, called the like the Costa Atlantica uh, out of Shanghai with a oh, the, over two thousand Chinese cruisers. And I uh, wrote about the experience. And I'm not going to spoil it at all. It's just Chris is a, a really great talent for, for being able to point out the ludicrous without being mean-spirited. And uh, it's he does this once again. He achieves – I mean, it would be so easy to be entirely mean-spirited in this. But he's not. And and yet it's rip-roaringly funny. It's such a guess. It's in the same spirit. He is the, clearly a masochist. <laughs> he is. He is. I mean, I, Chris, if he does one thing that, that I think he, he, he likes to put himself in these incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> situations where he's kind of the clown. I know he's told yeah. us before that his editors have, have, have forbidden him from doing anything more. So I guess he just changes, um, you know, editors once in a while. So this is not where his, his usual writing is in the New Republic. And it's not in the New Yorker where he's put a couple of pieces. It's actually in Bloomberg, but it's a good, long and, and deeply funny yeah and deeply observant piece, and we really look forward to having Chris on uh, in a couple of days to talk about that piece. So check it out. It's hysterical. <laughs> and uh, Jeremy, man, good to hear you. Yeah, good to be uh, on the show again. We seem to have worked out our technical issues. We have, so indeed. This will yeah, be, indeed. Uh, We're going to podcast like it's 1999. That's right. <laughs> if only. Okay. And, uh, and, and David, as always. So, uh, Christopher Cairns, thank you for coming on, and we really look forward to uh, to reading the paper when it's it's published in the China Quarterly. And uh, congratulations on that. Is this going to be the foundation of your dissertation work? Is this... uh, it's it's one study in the dissertation. I'm looking at uh, some other cases of censorship and how the government reacted during 2012, including the like I said, the Boshi Lai scandal. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a large piece of it. The world of China Watchers awaits because I think it's going to be very important work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we will uh, see folks next week on the Cynical Podcast. Take care.